That's not, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Die for the gay disco. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs. You're fighting for the gay disco. What? Are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains. And the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That's what they, that's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. Is there any argument you can use to wake him up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Welcome to South Bend, Indiana. Belated welcome. I'm sorry I'm late today. I had to go into Chicago. Traffic was bad, but I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk about uh, uh, an incident that happened just about a day ago. Stephen Crowder uh, held this uh, dramatic kind of uh, podcast. He's waving around a contract he said he got. Uh, he was going to. He's a big uh, a big uh, influencer on the internet. He's got a big following, and uh, he's got this idea that it's worth big money. And so he let that be known uh, out in the blogosphere, and he got an uh, offer. The offer. People are betraying the conservatives. They're big con, big conservatives. And uh, we were fighting big tech, but big con is in bed with big tech. And and I'm upset about that, and I'm upset about the uh, contract I got. Uh, and then he starts reading some of the clauses in the contract. And to be honest with you, I think they were predatory. Now, this whole discussion here is plagued 
by the absence of accurate language and the categories we need to know to understand what's going on. If you don't have categories, you can't understand what's going on. You can't say, well, this is a category. Category links this thing and this thing and this thing, and suddenly you say, oh, those three things are related. So maybe we can draw some conclusions from the fact that those things, three things are related because they're in the same category. Well, what's the category that we're, what are we being handed here? Conservatism. Conservatism is a category of the mind. It was created for political purposes. It's like white. That's a category of the mind. That was created for political purposes. It's like black. Black is a category of the mind, created for political purposes. Conservatism, what does that mean? When did it come into existence? Well, after World War II. Why did it come into existence after World War II? To distract uh, the, the people of the United States, in particular a certain group of people, I would say Catholics were one of them, uh, but uh, to distract them from the fact that there was a conservatism and no one was allowed to talk about it now. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about the political movement that came up in the 1930s known as America First. That was a genuine grassroots political movement, the purpose of which was to keep America out of the war, but it was also involved in supporting the Midwest. It was based in the Midwest. I'd say its headquarters were Detroit. Uh, three of the main players in the um, America First movement were uh, located in Detroit. Father Coughlin was located in Detroit. Henry Ford was located in Detroit. And Charles Lindbergh was there, even though it came from, originally came from Minnesota. Well, what do those three people have in common? Uh, the one thing they have in common is you are not allowed to talk about them. Uh, but secondly, now wait a minute, that's not completely true. You can talk about them if you preface everything you say about them by saying, that they were anti-Semites, and they are bad people, and so on and so forth. That is the uh, conservatism was created to uh, make you avert your eyes from that reality. Now, over this period of time, as the war machine got bigger and bigger and bigger, this idea of uh, what they would call uh, isolationism, uh, getting America out of war, foreign wars, became more and more important to the point today where it's very important. But here you have a guy who's calling himself a conservative who can't really address this issue because he's crippled by the fact that he believes there is this thing called conservatism. He's a victim of his own, uh, what should I say, categories or lack of categories. And so as a result, he can't really explain the situation. Well, so what is it going on? Is it a civil war in conservatism? No, no, I think we, we're talking about something simpler to understand. I think it's basically something I mentioned here before. It's basically the Jewish attempt to take over conservatism and control that narrative. This is not new. What do you think neoconservatives were? Irving Kristol, the father of neoconservatism, was a Jew, a Trotskyite during the 1930s, and then switched over to the other end of the political spectrum uh, in the 1970s and later. Uh, Reagan uh, kind of baptized this group, brought them into the big tent. Midge Dechter talked about that. She's the queen of neoconservatism. 
They took over the government, the foreign policy of the United States when George W. Bush uh, became president, and we had people like Paul Wolfowitz getting us into war in, the, in Iraq. And every time you let a neoconservative uh, near uh, any foreign policy, you're going to have war. They love war. Jews love war, uh, especially when they can get other people to die for them, which is precisely what is happening here in the Ukraine. But let's get back to Crowder. Crowder can't say this. Why can't he say this? Because the whole point of conservatism is to prevent you from saying the word Jew. It's that simple. Why do you think conservatism was created? To avoid the main issue that is now confronting us in America, which is the Jewish control of our politics. So what you have here is identity theft. And you've got a guy who perpetrates identity theft on himself by calling himself a conservative, and he can't really talk about it. Now, why am I saying this? Because this idea of the contract where you sign over your life to someone who's going to give you money is not new. As a matter of fact, uh, it's hundreds of years old, and it began with uh, the legend of Dr. Faustus, uh, uh, who man who sold his soul to the devil. This arrived in European history around the time of the um, advent of the money economy, because before this time you uh, you owed labor to the Lord. You were the serf. You owed labor to the Lord, and you didn't need money. You know, uh, you raised your own food. Uh, there was some money, but it wasn't really that important. It became important when you had to pay taxes. If you don't have money, you got to pay taxes in money. You have to borrow it and. The man who lent you the money was the Jew. And so what you had here was uh, Faust. The man, this is about, it's about borrowing money. That's what it's really about. You know, Faust uh, is uh, uh, an academic. He wants the, the good life. Grau teurer Freund ist alle Theorie. Grün aber des Lebens goldener Baum. That's what Dr. Faust, Goethe's Faust said. Theory's gray. I want uh, life's green tree. And what does that mean? It means, let's cut to the chase, sex. And not just any kind of sex. I want to have sex with Helen of Troy. And so he conjures up Helen of Troy, and it goes on, and everything's great until you wake up one morning, and hey, it's the contract is out. And you've got to pay it back. This is exactly what happens with uh, borrowing money. You can buy whatever you want. Oh, wait a minute, I gotta pay it back. And I have to pay it back with interest. And the longer I take paying it back, the more I get strangled by interest. And who's involved in this money lending? Well, it's the Jews. And nothing has changed in this regard. So it, we have to expand our categories to deal with reality. Jew is a category of reality. Conservative is a category of the mind. And that's why Crowder is crippled and all these people are crippled because they can't deal with what is actually going on, which is basically uh, no matter how much money the Jew is offering you at Daily Wire, he's in involved in identity theft. He's stealing your identity, and this is precisely what happened to uh, Crowder. They own everything he does now. $50 million. Who can complain with $50 million? That was basically Dice's uh, rebuttal to this thing. Who can complain? Shut up. You're going to make a lot of money. Who cares what the other clauses say? As long as you have a lot of money, well, this is 
uh, something that I've written about recently. I gave a speech in Evansville to a great group of people who are the embodiment of the resurrection of America first, manufacturers, people who make something, uh, uh, people who understand that labor is the source of all value. These are the people, this is coming back in the Midwest by the grace of God, inshallah, as my Iranian brothers would say. Okay, so it was great, but we have to get a, a sophisticated discussion here in which we can understand the difference between wealth and money. Now, the, the dictionary will say they're the same thing, but they're not the same thing. And someone who found this out, and this is what I talked about down there, and the, the full article is in this month's issue of Culture Wars, which you all should subscribe to immediately. No, no, wait on me. Wait till the show is finished. Anyway, Jack Nicholas. Remember Jack Nicholas? One of the most famous golfers of all time. He won every single major tournament many times over. Uh, he reaches the age of uh, 70, uh, I think it was 70 years old. You know, that's what you're given in life, three score and 10, according to the Bible. And he wants to decide, how much am I worth? He's got, not only has he won all this money in tournaments, he's got a golf course design business that is making him a lot of money. And so he sits down. Uh, personally, it reminded me of the man in the gospel who had that great harvest and built two barns. Shouldn't have done that. Uh, God took him that night because he should have shared that wealth with the poor, but he didn't. He's going to have two barns. What? I don't have to worry about the future anymore. I got two barns. Well, Jack Nicholas did the same thing, and they came up, hired a bunch of people, and they came up with the idea, not the idea, figure. They came up with the figure that he was worth $296 million. Well, that's a lot of money. Uh, but it's, that's a category of the mind. That's a figure. And suddenly someone appears, uh, a man by the name of uh, Howard Milstein. Now, this is an art. You want to read it? It's in Sports Illustrated. I'm not making this up. Uh, wh what's the category missing here? Uh, what do you think Mr. Milstein is? Th that's the word we're not allowed to use. But not only that, Mr. Milstein's people have been in his business for a long time, a long time. Uh, the classic example is Shylock in Merchant of Venice. And Shylock says to Antonia, I want to be your friend. I'm going to lend you money. Well, Mr. Milstein is now in a much more sophisticated economy, and he says, Jack, I want to be your friend. I'm going to give you $145 million. Now, who can say no to that? $145 million, and all you have to do is give me 49% of your operation. Well, Jack is thinking. Uh, I think he was thinking. Maybe he wasn't thinking. Uh, I got 50%. I'm in control. Well, things did not work out that way. And uh, Jack Nicholas ended up, in his own words, being a dishonored employee in the corporation that he founded. Uh, because, now, that you wanted the details, read the article. Uh, but basically... There was a long, complicated contract, a lot like what Crowder was waving around in front of you, and it had all kinds of clauses which said basically, if this happens, 
then we're going to cut you out of this amount of money. And if this happens, then you'll lose even more money if this happens, and so on and so forth. And the main thing that happened, of course, was the crash of 2008. And suddenly, uh, the whole deal changed. And it turned out, oh, by the way, Jack, uh, that was just a loan. We didn't pay you that. That was just a loan. If you read the fine print, it was a loan. And now you are saddled with a loan of 8.5% on $140 million. Well, that's a lot of money. And basically, everything that comes out of your corporation, we have first dibs on it. Well, now this is this is not what I signed for. This it's like he's like uh, Doctor, he's like Doctor Faustus. Wait a minute, I, I didn't sign. I don't read. No, you did, buddy. Uh, you just didn't read the fine print. And so now uh, Jack doesn't like the situation, and he's saying, oh, I think I'm going to get out of this contract." Uh, well, uh, but in the meantime. Uh, I'm just going to call, you know, I got a lot of people, I got a lot of contacts in the uh, golf uh, business, uh, I've been building golf courses, and yeah, I think I'll just talk to a, well, no, Mr. Milstein comes in and says to Jack, you're not allowed to talk to anybody. As a matter of fact, we own the name Jack Nicholas. Read the contract, buddy, you should have read it the first time. We own that name. We own you. I don't care how much money you have, we own you, and I'm telling you, you cannot talk to anybody without our permission. That sounds a lot like Crowder, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, it's exactly like Crowder, except that Crowder can't figure it out because that he can't say the word Jew. If you don't have a category called the Jews, you can't figure anything out, and that, let's be honest here. Let's be honest here, the whole point of conservatism is to keep you stupid. You haven't figured that out yet, have you? Why do you think Ben Shapiro and his buddies are willing to pay this guy $50 million? Why are they willing to do that? Because it's their job to keep you stupid. And keeping you stupid means don't uh, use this category called the Jews. Don't bring it up. Let's just talk about conservatives. And that way we can uh, manipulate you and keep you on the reservation because we own you. So I don't care what Dice said. Uh, it's a lot of money, sure it is. But money isn't wealth because labor is the source of all value. And if you're cut off from your labor, you can't produce value. So what, what is Jack going to do? Jack has, uh, he's 70, what is he, 75 years old, something like that. What are you going to do with $150 million when you're 70 years old? There's only one sensible thing that you can do when you have that kind of money, as it is to invest it in something that will bring money out of labor. That's called a business. A business turns labor into money. Let me, let me back up. A business turns labor into wealth, and wealth can be turned into money. That's the only thing you do. What are you going to do? Go into Walmart? I'll take one of everything. No. That's precisely what happened at this period of time. If you read Barren Metal, which is the, the book that is the basis of what I'm talking about here, you'll find out that Adam Smith believed that Adam, uh, labor was the source of all value. And Adam Smith said, so the, the, high, the lairds 
in Highland, in the Highlands in Scotland had men at their command, and they were a source of wealth because they could shear sheep and got, you know make wool, whatever it is, you know. But it's not a spectacular uh, amount of wealth, and it's gradual, and you have to work to get it. So what did he want? He wanted silver buckles. That's what Adam Smith said. This is the whole rise of the money economy. He sold out his own men because he wanted silver buckles on his shoes. Now, why do you want that? Well, because he was going to go to court, and he wanted to show up and make a big impression on everyone, and he needed to do this type of stuff. And so basically, you exchange labor, which is the source of all value, for a certain amount of money, which you pissed away by buying luxury items. That's the story of America. That's the story of capitalism, and that's the story that we're talking about here. And this is basically the temptation that was offered to Stephen Crowder. Now, we can take it back even farther, and there's a, a, a Jew by the name of Samuel Roth who wrote a book in 1933 called Jews Must Live. A very interesting book. Uh, Roth was a pornographer uh, and a pirate uh, of the literary kind. He pirated an edition of Ulysses and a pirate, brought out a pirated edition of Lady Chatterley's Lover because he was a pornographer. These were obscene books, certainly by the criterion of the day. Spent nine years in jail uh, for uh, selling pornography. Uh, those days are gone, aren't they? And uh, But they wrote this book, which is an extremely interesting book, because the Jews, the big Jews, didn't like him, and they tried to destroy him. And he goes through a very detailed analysis. Can't read the article. A detailed analysis about how the Jews take over your business that is applicable exactly to Jack Nicholas, that story, and exactly to the, the, the noose, uh, the, the trap that uh, Crowder probably evaded. Okay, maybe he's going to sign. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, uh, but it's the exact definition of how the Jew, step by step, goes to a thriving business, uh, says, you know, you want to expand your business? Of course I want to expand my business. I have the way for you. Uh, my friend uh, Shlomo here will lend you uh, $50 million. You could expand the factory, and that's where the ball starts rolling. And it ends up in exactly the same position as Jack Nicholas. The man who owned the company is now a dishonored employee in the company he started, all because of the Jew uh, lending him money. This is what's going on here. He concludes... Uh, basically, this story, this fictional story of Mr. Linton, this is Roth in his book, Jews Must Live. Uh, Linton ends up, as I said, being dispossessed of his own property, but the Jew doesn't leave it. He says, wait a minute, don't, 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 you don't have to walk away. you got a house there. You can stay at the house and work as my servant. Well, that's exactly what is being offered here, isn't it? Jack! You can work on your golf course as my servant because I own you. I own your name. You can't even talk to anyone without my permission. This is the trap that Crowder avoided. But anyway, the conclusion here is, this is uh, Roth, a direct quote from Roth's book. Someone had to be dispossessed so that his, the Jews' relations might have a home. Linton realized with a sinking heart that he really had no chance. His whole life had been lost the moment he crossed Levy's threshold and borrowed money from him. It's not an, that's my add to it. 
He had been dealing not with a man, but with a whole people. This is the absolute crucial statement that we have to understand if we want to avoid these traps in the future. Crowder doesn't know this. Crowder, listen to me. You're dealing with a whole people. It's not, it's not just Ben Shapiro. It's a whole people who have had centuries of experience in expropriating people's money. And they've turned it into a science that got used on Jack Nicholas, got used over and over and over again. That's my rant for tonight. Uh, as I said, read the article in Culture Wars. It's much better than what I just said. The details are all there. Uh, also, uh, all of this is only comprehensible to me because I wrote two books, Barren Metal, A History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury, and The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. If you want to be able to interpret, you want to navigate a very perilous world, I recommend that you uh, buy these books and educate yourself. Thank you. Let's hear what you have to say. Okay, hello. The voice you're hearing right now is uh, Mike Bajakis. I help Dr. Jones with these streams. <clears throat> uh, right now, you can call in and ask Dr. Jones a question of yourself. Uh, for those who don't know, it's going to be uh, on Telegram. Uh, if you want to know where the Telegram channel is, there is a plenty of links in our descriptions below uh, bring you to that Telegram channel. Click that and you'll be in. Um, all right, in Telegram, I ask you to raise your hands, and then later off in the stream, we'll read texts via Cozy, some from Telegram. Try to keep questions on subject. Try to keep the one question. Be respectful of time. And remember, do not forget to unmute yourself after I unmute you. All right, here. Here we go to Telegram. MV. Let me unmute you. Go ahead. MV. Hello, Dr. Jones, can you hear me? I can. How do you do? Uh, I've got Baron Middle. I'm working my way through it. It's pretty big, but it's a great book. Great. Um, God bless you. Something else I've heard you talk about. Okay, thank you for writing it. Something else I've heard you talk about, which I haven't heard mentioned in the context of the Ukraine war, is Mackinder's Heartland Theory. And I can't help but think about that going on right now, that we're trying to, the U.S. is trying to prevent the Eurasian landmass from uniting. And that coupled with Bell supremacy, in addition to the cultural factors going on with, with the Washington DC establishment of Zelensky is all working together. What, what do you think about the, the, um, the Kinder concept is what's going yeah, on? Yeah, the, the fundamental foreign policy uh, principle of the Anglo-American empire is to prevent the unification of the Eurasian landmass. Now, traditionally, this has meant Germany uh, allying with Russia. That's what led to World War I. Uh, the Winston Churchill and his boys, Lord Grey, decided that is not going to happen. Uh, it's obviously what happened right now. The United States blew up the pipeline uh, that was the source of all the overwhelming uh, majority of the natural gas that went to Germany. That's what that's, what that's about. Now, that's obvious, uh, uh, but what's even more obvious is what Hegel called the cunning of reason, the list de vernunft, 
the policies that these people are, are doing are bringing about the exact opposite of what they intend. Classic example being sanctions. 40% of the world's population is under sanctions. This is causing great dissatisfaction and it's causing the opposite to come about, which is basically that all of these people now, these people that hate the United States and rightfully should hate the United States for its foreign policy, have now decided they're going to go their own way. And they're, at the last meeting in Davos, you probably didn't see this, but Saudi Arabia announced it's going to take payment for oil in currencies other than the dollar. So they're bringing about the exact opposite of what they intend. Uh, this is the, exactly the fruit of this Jewish foreign policy that has had our country by a stranglehold uh, from, for a long time now, certainly since the Bush administration. Okay, This is the fruit of these people. They bring about the exact opposite of what they intend. And what is, so what are their plans? Well, Larry Fink, uh, did you hear about this? Larry Fink is the head of BlackRock. He's one of those people. He is ready to sign a deal with Mr. Zelensky. We're going to help develop the Ukraine. Well, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We know what happened when Wall Street uh, uh, tried to help develop Russia. They looted Russia uh, under Jeffrey Sachs' direction. Right after when Russia was vulnerable, we destroyed, we, we, we betrayed their trust in us consistently. Uh, and now Larry Fink is going to work with Zelensky and he's going to loot the Ukraine. What do you, I just met with a Ukrainian today, Ukrainian lady. She says they're all saying, that basically the Jews are involved in the ethnic cleansing of the Ukraine right now. They're telling all the Ukrainian people, oh, it's dangerous here, go to Germany, go to Poland. Well, they're leaving. Well, guess who's gonna fulfill this vacuum? This is going to be, she's talking about the, the Jerusalem 2 project. This will be homecoming for this group of people because that's where they came from. They certainly didn't come from Palestine. They came from the Pale of the Settlement. That's Ukraine, that's all of these places. And I think their idea is they're going to regain it now. Well, uh, it's not going to happen, fellas, because you are going to lose this war. Russia, the Russian troops, have, as I speak, have surrounded Bakhmut. Bakhmut wird eingekesselt. That's what the Germans would have said. They're, they're, they're using this word instead of kessel, kettle. They're using the word cauldron. There's a cauldron around Bakhmut now. Once Bakhmut falls, there's nothing to pr uh, prevent them from going straight to the Dnieper. So good luck, Larry. It's not going to work. Good luck, uh, Mr. Zelensky. It's not going to work. There's a bigger plan of work here, and it involves Russia as the scourge of God. Anyway, that was a long, rambling response to your question. Thank you for asking it. Much appreciated. Thank you. I, I agree that it's not what he did for the Ukrainians and they're spinning it every way they can. No matter what they send in terms of weapons, it's too little too late. So I appreciate what they're doing. Thank you. Yep. All right. Uh, continuing on here, uh, GBOSS88. The floor is yours. Your your sound your sound is uh, your sounds uh, kind of messed up. It's kind of robotic. If you could, um, uh, uh, you probably have to turn off the program you're using and then start over again, and then I'll call on you 
when you get back. Reset it. Maybe maybe it'll work. Sorry about that. All right, we got Robo G Boss. Hopefully, we'll get real G Boss here. Uh, Mike Yay Twenty Four. The floor is yours. Hello, Doctor. Uh, it's good to it's good to uh, be here. Ask a question. I met you in Cincinnati. Uh, it was great to meet you. Uh, my question is: Is do you believe the United States should have ever been uh, gotten involved in uh, World War II? Thank you. No. No, I I think that Lindbergh. Um, I think that they were right. They should have stayed out of World War II. The Brit, the uh, they, the British had sent over a, an agent provocateur who was working behind the scenes to get involved. No, the answer to your question is no. I don't think America should have become involved in that war because once the Americans got involved, then suddenly it was unconditional surrender. That is no way to wage a war. You see the legacy of this now in the Ukraine. There were when you say unconditional surrender, you're saying a lot of people are going to die. Okay, Hitler repeatedly tried to come to some type of peace agreement, and no, the answer is always unconditional surrender. Germania delenda est. The Jews, like uh, Theodor Kaufmann, was the title of his book, Germany Must Perish. They wanted to destroy the German people, not just the Nazis, German people, the Morgenthau plan. You can read about that in Culture Wars as well. That was the whole point of that. If the United States had stayed out of the war, Britain would have had to make peace. They could have had to come to some type of negotiated settlement. There would still be buildings left. They wouldn't have destroyed Germany, even though Germany, uh, England was involved in that saturation bombing campaign. They simply would have had to come to the table and make some type of rational peace. Instead, what you had was communism taking over all of Eastern Europe. It was, it was a disaster, and we're still living uh, in that nightmare. So the yeah, short answer to your question is no. Okay, let's uh, real quick jump to G-Boss. Go ahead, give it a shot, see if it fixed itself. Okay, I'm real sorry for that. Is everything working well now? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Good evening, Dr. Jones. Uh, I like to. I'm. I really do agree on like your take on like conservatism in regards to like the, uh, to like the Jews and all that. Um, I would like to ask this one question though. Um, and it's really on like, what are your views on like democracy? Because like we're talking about all these things, like how conservatism is has not shown itself to be very good in like getting our points across. But like, what do you think about like you know democracy in of itself as a system? Do you think we should like still have it or like get rid of it? Like, what is your views on it? Yeah, well, uh, certainly uh, uh, Plato. Uh, had a cyclical theory of uh, politics, which is basically you begin with aristocracy, which is the, the rule of the best. Uh, then you go to plutocracy, which when they sell their rights, then it becomes the rule of the wealthy. And then you become uh, to uh, democracy, which is basically a uh, rule of demos, which means uh, the, man, the people uh, but it's a, it's a pejorative term. The mob is what we would say. Das Purbel, we would say uh, in German. Uh, now, I, I can understand what he's saying there, but uh, I, I'm basically coming from the Catholic point of view, which is basically that there, there 
all these forms of government all have their advantages and they all have their, their flaws. There's always a disadvantage uh, and an advantage to each form of government. And so I'm saying basically uh, as Americans, we don't have any real option here. We have to have representative government. We don't, we, if I, I was supposed scheduled to speak in France. Um, I spent the whole summer practicing my French and I couldn't get on the plane because of the COVID thing. The, the, the man, if, if the French wanted a king, they know who to go to, they have his address. He wrote a letter to the, uh, the Le Vendée conference I was supposed to speak at congratulating them and saying, you know, basically I'm still here, I'm still here. We don't have that. We never had that. We have a uh, Tom Paine, who's not a, a, a favorite of mine, but he said, in America, the law is king. That's pretty much what it is. And now we have the systematic undermining of the law by our Jewish uh, attorney general and Soros prosecutors all over the country. That's all we have. We don't have anything else to work with, and so that's what we have to go with. And we have to make sure that we can return to this and the only way we can return to it is by reestablishing the moral fa foundation that allows democracy to work, okay? If you can't control your own passions, you certainly can't govern. And that was the fundamental base understanding of John Adams when he said we have no constitution that functions in the absence of a moral people. So it's relative. If you're a Frenchman, I can understand what you're saying. Uh, you, you could write to the guy and ask him to become king. We're dealing with something similar in Iran. They have the Shah, uh, uh, his son, or wants to come back. Uh, we don't have that in America. We have to work within the parameters of the rule of law and representative government, which means democracy. All right, let's go with, who's that? Charles Otto William Wade. And the floor is yours. Am I clear? Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Right. Uh, good evening, uh, Dr. Jones. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak uh, again. It's been some time, but uh, uh, what I wanted to ask you was, uh, I think, something you touch on multiple times here, which is uh, you, you often, like, as bad as, say, Ireland is, you've often uh, said that, like, it, did their... Uh, the task ahead of them is is simply to return to church, you know, go to mass, uh, reconnect with sort of the transcendence, which, but you've described sort of a, a lot of fundamental problems with, say, the Anglo psyche or the, the English psyche. You've described their journey as being much more difficult. And uh, right. I think there's a lot of it... Uh, date back to say the reformation where you often describe it as a looting operation right. which i would completely agree with and is there something within the english psyche or something which prevents them from thinking of the transcendent in any way that they're 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 all they've been fixated for hundreds of years on like empiricism and all these right. things and, and right. they, they have the, and like you see you've put you've given examples of that how they're like they're very few famous like English artists or composers were compared to like the continent. Right, right. I, I think you're right. I think that the English are intellectually crippled. Uh, I, I, it's first of all, uh, in terms of metaphysics, in terms of philosophy, they, they've never gotten over William of Ockham. 
this William of Ockham had a terrible influence on the continent and an even worse influence in England. Then you have the crippling effect of the, the, Refor uh, the Reformation, where basically it was a coup d'etat, uh, a group of aliens, uh, and I'm talking about Protestants at this point, whose allegiance was more to Luther and Germany than it was to the English people, took over the country, uh, enslaved, uh, uh, dispossessed people, uh, completely overthrew the, the uh, system whereby the peasants could live off the land uh, and uh, created a, a rootless proletariat that didn't really find employment until the Industrial Revolution, centuries later. So it was a, a terrible crippling effect. The result was, I, I was at the Bolton Abbey. A good friend of mine took me to Bolton Abbey when I was in England the last time. It's a big uh, Gothic, uh, it looks like a cathedral. Uh, there's a sign at the door. It says, Mass has been celebrated here since the 13th century. Well, great. You go in, and suddenly you look down, and where? wait a minute. Where's the sanctuary? You look down, and there's a wall. Now, this is symbolic. Architecture has a symbolic value. What they're doing is basically cutting themselves off from the past. The one thing they don't want to talk about is when that you could see straight to the altar, and the priest at that altar would consecrate the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And you don't want to talk about that because, I'm sorry, but uh, this is all stolen property. So there's this suppression. There's this repre repression that is part of the English personality that has crippled them. It's crippled them uh, to this day. Uh, Ray Von Williams did a book called uh, Ethnic Music. It was a series of... Uh, um, lectures that he gave at Bryn Mawr College in the 1930s. And he talked about, why is it the English, why don't they have decent music? Why can't the English produce music? He said it was, goes back to the 18th century. I think he's talking about Handel. Basically, uh, King George brought Handel over from, from Germany, and he was so good that from that point, uh, every Englishman felt he had to be a German in order to make music, and it crippled the development of English music. Wherever you look, uh, in, in philosophy, in politics, the arts, whatever it is, there is this repression that denies them connection with emotion, with their, their deepest emotion. Like a Russian, a Russian composer has direct contact with emotion, and the music expresses that. But I'm saying that this, this is not part of the English personality, and it won't be until they return to the Catholic faith. Now, that's a lot more complicated than Ireland. Ireland is so recent. Look, the church is still there, fellas. And you all you have to do is go back to church and get down on your knees and tell God you're sorry for uh, approving abortion, gay marriage, and that whole agenda. Usury played a big part of that as well. Well, it's a little more complicated in England, but it's still possible. It's possible in Germany. Uh, another place where they're going to you're going to have to get down on your knees. I said this. I did a video in um, German. Why not? See, I can speak to them in their language. I can't speak to any other world country in in their language. But I, it was tempered by the book I wrote on art, the dangers of beauty, because the lesson of that is the artist can portray what the philosopher cannot explain. And I, I, look, the Germans are so twisted. They're so twisted because of their, the corruption of their morals, largely sexual morality. They're twisted in knots. 
they think that they're guilty because of the Holocaust. Uh, it's become a law now. They're afraid to talk to each other. Uh, I, I said, look, Ger I said it in German, Deutschland braucht ein Heiland. Okay, that's easy to say. Germany needs a savior. We all need a savior. What do you think Advent is about? We can't do this on our own. We can't get out of the morass of human sin on our own. We can't even straighten up our, our own lives on our own. We need a savior. And I'm saying Germany needs a savior. Well, obviously. But I felt that I had to do it through art. And so when I said that, the soundtrack started playing Sleepers Awake by Bach. It's the, uh, the, it's the cantata, Wachet Auf is the name of the cantata. Uh, it's famous in English as Sleepers Awake because they're all asleep. This is Advent. The cantata is about the ten wise virgins. The ten foolish virgins all fell asleep. Germany is not only asleep, they're sleepwalking. It's a nation of sleepwalkers, and they're walking toward their doom. And it's time to wake up. And I'm betting that Bach's cantata will awake with them within the German people the, the, the reminder that they are all baptized, that they all accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior at some time along the road. And if they want to get out of the mess they're in right now, all they have to do is go back to that Savior and ask him for help by getting on their knees and saying they're sorry for all of the corruption that they've allowed in their country. It's that simple, and it's not, uh, that's not simple, but it's possible. And I'm saying it's only possible in those terms because if you remove that sense, it's hopeless. They will never wake up. They will walk, sleepwalk to their doom. That's where they're going right now. All right, Doc. Well, it's um, 7.52. I know we started a little bit late, but... Uh, let's, let's continue. We started late, so let's... let's all right. We'll continue uh, for you, a little bit more. Did you want to jump to the text? Or let's go. Going? Let's hear what the, the people who uh, know how to write have to say. All right, writers, it's all you. Cozy, Telegram, uh, go ahead and ask your questions via the chat and text. No more calls. And we'll start reading them all. Okay. Uh, from AA Telegram, uh, Dr. Jones. <coughs> At what time exactly did the Jews infiltrate American conservatism and how? Okay, the, um, I think the best uh, source in this regard is uh, Midge Dechter's memoir, An Old Wife's Tale. Uh, she said it was under Reagan uh, in the 1980s. Basically, Reagan wanted Jew money, wanted it from Wall Street. He opened uh, the tent, and that's that's how they got their foot in the door. Eventually, Midge and her husband, this is the power couple, Midge uh, Dechter and Norman Podaris. Norman Podaris was editor of Commentary for years. Uh, they eventually uh, got to take over. As Father Hesburgh says, you let the Jews in, they take over. So they got into the Philadelphia Society, which is the conservative society. We're talking about the early 80s now, when Reagan comes in. Uh, uh, Russell Kirk, one of the founding fathers of conservatism, wrote the book The Conservative Mind, published in 1953, I believe. 
uh, by Henry Regnery. I knew Henry Regnery when he was alive. He told me a lot of the stories of the, the uh, part, uh, history of what's going on. He uh, gave a speech at the Philadelphia Society in which he said, Tel Aviv is not the capital of America. And he was kicked out of his own organization. Does that remind you of anything? It's like Jack Nicholas is kicked out of his own golf club. This is precisely what happened here. And now they have a stranglehold on our culture. They're driving us to a war that is going to end badly for everyone concerned. And we're not allowed to talk about it. We're not allowed to talk about it. We're not allowed to say the word Jew. We're not allowed to make these connections. That's what's got to change. If we, don't, if we don't change, we're going to lose this country. It's that simple. I hope that answered your question. Okay, uh, next question from Cozy from Kingfish AF. Uh, Dr. Jones, if you were to write a book on geocentrism, would you first have to address the whole moon landing thing? No. Now, first of all, I'm not going to write the book. Robert Sungenis wrote the book. By his book, uh, Galileo was wrong. There's uh, the point, the fundamental point at this point is after Einstein, there is no objective order to the universe, okay? It's not the, the order, what you perceive, the order of the universe, in a sense, depends on the position of the observer. So the, the example would be uh, if, if there's a train, train is moving down the track, there's a man in the boxcar, he drops a ball, let's say. Drops a basketball so you can see it. Now, what is the trajectory of that ball? Well, it depends. If you're in the boxcar, it's straight down. If you're standing uh, on, on the, by, the, by the railroad track, it's a parabola. There is, so the same thing is true of what goes around what. If you're standing on the moon, the Earth goes around the moon. Uh, now, that's the, that's, the, that's the case. So Einstein made this whole uh, question irrelevant, okay? Geocentrism is every bit as valid as heliocentrism. All of basically the navigational, uh, uh, all of navigation is predicated on the fact that the Earth is uh, at the center of the universe and everything, the heavens go around it. It's, it's just a, a, a convention that is perfect. Uh, the, the calculations will come out perfectly the same. Now, you can take that a step further, and you can say, bring up the Michelson-Morley experiments, which are basically show that the Earth is not moving. No one's been able to refute that. Uh, uh, and this is where Bob Syngenis takes it, and he makes the case that the Earth is the absolute center of the universe. Uh, that's, his, that's his position. So to answer your question, no, I'm not going to write the book. It's already been written. And secondly, if you want to read the book, uh, Ask him the question. All right. Uh, this is a little bit long. Uh, here on Telegram from a Reggie Mercer. <clears throat> Dr. Jones, you led me down the road of philosophy, and now I've read Schopenhauer and Kant, Schilling, and Hegel. What's your opinion on Schopenhauer's philosophy that puts the will to live as the singular and universal principle to all living and non-living beings? I think you, combine, you can combine his singular will to live common to all things with Hegel's dialectic process to create a system of logos willing itself through matter into life and eventually consciousness on the path of the unifying of unifying the will and the intellect in the mind of God. Yeah, well, uh, for, first of all, 
uh, uh, Schopenhauer, his valorization of will was uh, uh, pure, uh, purely the result of basically the, the triumph of German idealism and German thought. So if uh, everything is a category of the mind, everything is uh, a creation of the mind, the best man who, uh, the man who dealt with this uh, in a very effective way, in many ways was the creator of the dialectic before Hegel was Fichte. Uh, Hegel was a student at the time when Fichte was a famous philosopher. Uh, he wrote a book called The Vocation of Man, uh, which is a very clear explication of the how Schopenhauer got the idea, which is basically, uh, you start off with a universe, that's this Spinozan universe, which is all matter, and there's no thought. Thought is an epiphenomenon of matter. Uh, okay, that's known as materialism. And then you break away with that, and then you have idealism, which is realized, well, even if it's, uh, uh, if, if, if it's thought, then maybe there's no matter behind it, which goes against Kant's idea of the Ding an sich. Kant tried to preserve the objective world with the Ding an sich, but he said it was unknowable. Well, if it's unknowable, maybe it's not there. And so you have the triumph of idealism, where everything is uh, uh, malleable, it's a function of human thought, but it's unreal. Well, how do you bring about the best of both worlds? This is the dialectic. Well, the answer is action. And that's the conclusion Fichte comes to in the third part of his uh, book. Well, action's dependent upon will. Well, okay, now you've created will as the spiritus movens in the universe, uh, but whose will? <laughs> that becomes the problem with, with Schopenhauer and all the people who follow him. And so when you get to the point of unifying the will and the intellect and the mind of God, well, yeah, you can, God's, God's will, when God thinks it, it becomes real. When you think it, it doesn't. It, you're just thought. In order for your thought to become real, you have to act. And so will certainly plays a role in that, but it's not the absolute that he's trying to make it into, just as thought is not the absolute that, that the German idealist tried to make it to. You will never get away from the fact that uh, there are a category of the mind and there's a category of reality. When these two things come together and coincide, that's called the truth. Uh, and that's the goal that we have here is one, one of the transcendentalists, but you'll never get away uh, e by eliminating either one or the other, either reality or the mind. Spinoza tried to eliminate the mind by making it an epiphenomenon of reality. The idealist turned that upside down and tried to make reality a phenomenon of the mind. It's not, neither one is going to work. And so your idea of will as the driving force is not gonna work. What you will do and this is, uh, Nietzsche obviously was influenced by Schopenhauer. He obviously believes in uh, the will as the driving force. Uh, what happens is uh, you say, okay, will, but what happens in this ordinary, the universe we live in, is the truth becomes the opinion of the powerful and their, they, their will is the will that prevails when you hand everything over to will. The best uh, explication of this came from uh, Shakespeare. Uh, read uh, Troil, uh, Ulysses' speech in Troilus and Cressida, and you'll see how this idea all broke, began with the, with the Reformation. Anyway, that's a long, I, I, this, I'm trying to put 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag here. What you need to do is read, uh, this is more, you need to read Logos Rising.
because that's where I deal with this in detail. It's really too complicated for a, a, a simple question. I hope I answered your question to the best of my ability, but it's really a much more complicated thing, and I would recommend Logos Rising as a way of understanding it. All right, moving on here. Uh, uh, from Yikes Department, E. Michael Jones, where did you get your sweaters and other assorted drip? Uh, my daughter bought them for me. So uh, contact me. Now, she, she bought uh, this. This, by the way, uh, except the sweaters all come from my daughter. God bless her. Uh, this is a uh, jacket that was made by an Indian tailor, custom made. Uh, because he saw that I had holes in that Harris tweed jacket. So uh, th thanks to my friend Ravi and Devyani in, uh, in Delhi, they contacted Taylor and he built, uh, made this for me. Uh, so, but, but to, to step back, the Irish sweaters are made by uh, people on the Aran Islands. Uh, you can go on the web uh, and find uh, those people and you can buy them. Uh, the, the jacket I had uh, was wore out was Harris Tweed, uh, great, great cloth. It was a great jacket. I loved it to death. That's why I wore it out completely, holes in the elbows. I just wore it everywhere. I wore it on the equator. I wore it in South America. I wore it in the freezing deserts of south of Tehran. I love that jacket because Harris Tweed is such a, a great jacket. My Irish friends uh, upbraided me for not mentioning Donegal Tweed. Uh, God bless him. I, I'm not trying to say Donegal over uh, Harris. Uh, uh, I'm not trying to make invidious comparisons here, but basically these are the, the, the leads you need to know if you want to start wearing clothing like this. Okay, um, from Justin Tate on Telegram. Um, how do I have a conversation with my nine-year-old daughter about the JQ? I'm a single father, and the mom is Jewish and in Florida prison. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, now this is this is a good question uh, because uh, all right. Uh, how do you look? I think there's a more basic question here. You got a nine-year-old girl, and you're saying, "Look, um, mo mommy's in prison." Well, that's that's serious. I mean, she. I'm sure she feels the loss there. Then the next question is. Well, why is mommy in prison? Well, well, why did, because she did something wrong. Now, this is completely theoretical on my part. I don't know the details of this case. Well, did, did she did something wrong? Well, I, yeah, she broke the law. Well, why did she do that? Well, uh, part of it was the way she was raised. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, well, she's Jewish. She doesn't believe in Logos as we do. I mean, we, we worship the Logos incarnate. That means you have to act in a moral way. If you're, uh, if you're in rebellion against Logos, you're going to try and figure out how to cheat people. That's what Heinrich Great said. He's a Jew. I mean, he was, he was trying to be honest here. I've already talked to you, I mean, earlier in this podcast, I've already talked to you about these Jewish swindlers and how they, they have a system that's evolved out of that. That's that's how I would take it. I wouldn't start off by talking about the Jewish. That's too abstract. Those categories are too abstract for a nine-year-old. But I I begin by talking about why mommy is in jail. All right. Uh, from uh, Cozy from Too Thitty, 
Uh, question: What does Dr. Jones make of Vindman saying the new or saying new Israel government too cozy with Russia? Do they see the wind blowing, uh, uh, the way the wind blowing? Too cozy with Russia. Yeah. The, the Israelis have come out on the side of the Ukraine. I don't know what I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that. Yeah, that's why I was kind of. I interested. mean, ba basically, uh, uh, the probably the language you'll hear most if you go to Tel Aviv will be Russian. There are lots of Russian Jews there in, in Israel. And Putin has tried to maintain a relationship with these people as part of the Russian diaspora. But, uh, you know, no good deed goes unpunished when you're talking with the Jews, and now the Jews are basically supplying weapons to the Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Putin. Thank you for all you've done, and now we're going to support your enemy because Zelensky is a Jew, and he's going to try and, I think, create the, you know, the new pale of the settlement there. So. I, I don't think that uh, that's the way I would deal with that issue. From J.T. Groypen on Cozy, Dr. Jones, how much can Vatican II and the Pope's following be criticized without schism? Okay, first of all, schism is not an intellectual sin. It's a sin against charity and refusal to associate with uh, the communion. So basically, when you commit the sin of schism, you're removing yourself from the communion. If you are uh, criticized, first of all, why can't we criticize Vatican II, whatever it means, okay? If you say that the, the Vatican Council uh, is wrong, that the documents of the Vatican Council are heretical, uh, you're wrong. I, I, I think that's, I think you're wrong. Uh, and it's an overstatement. And if you say, but th it's still, you know, okay, that's your opinion. These are magisterial documents. You're undermining the whole magisterium of the Catholic Church when you do that. It would be better if you had a more sophisticated approach. And I, 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 I'm far from sophisticated, but I, I've, all, I've mentioned the fact that Nostra Tate has led to a disaster in the Catholic Church, known, the failed experiment known as Catholic-Jewish dialogue. That's not in Nostra Aetate, but what is in Nostra Aetate is the statement the Church condemns all forms of anti-Semitism. They didn't define anti-Semitism. Well, you can't have a, a statement like that unless you define it. Now, I'm not being a schismatic when I say that. I'm being, uh, I, I think I'm being a loyal uh, member of the Catholic Church because I'm hoping that the, a clarification will resolve something that is tearing the church apart. So as long as you're uh, not going to use this as an excuse to leave the church and break communion, uh, you're not going into schism. Okay, from uh, Cozy, Kingfish uh, AF, I think we, well, we have another, we got good questions, Kingfish. Uh, was there a Morgenthau plan for the other Axis powers? No. No, I mean, uh, obviously ja Japan had been conquered as well, and there was uh, they, a, a, f a form of social engineering was imposed on Japan as well. But Morgenthau was only interested in Germany. It was this Jewish animus toward Germany that was the essence of the Morgenthau plan. He wasn't the only Jew. Uh, but no, there was no, no Morgenthau plan for, for Japan or any other, or Italy, for example. No, certainly no, no Morgenthau plan for Italy. 
Um, okay. Uh, from Hate for the Left, a question for Dr. Jones. A while back, you indicated that the theory of evolution is a corrupting influence. Why is that? Um, because it undermines the moral law. Um, How so? Uh, first of all, there's no fixed position. So anytime you make a statement, it's going to evolve into something else. So you have no certainty, okay? Uh, but but uh, it, it creates this kind of metaphysical uncertainty. Uh, and I think it was, uh, but it also, um, look, uh, uh, Darwin was promoted by uh, the oligarchs in England at the time. Uh, Huxley, T.H. Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog. The capitalists at that time wanted to exploit the worker. The main object, the uh, main obje objection was moral, and this undermined the moral objection and basically substituted something like survival of the fittest, whatever that means. That wasn't, uh, that was Spencer, that wasn't Darwin who said that. But this was, it's all a function of the ruling elite in, in England at this time that basically wanted to escape from the burden of the moral law when it came to uh, paying the worker a decent wage. And the best way to do this was to say, well, it's, it's not morals. This began with Newton. Okay, when Newton created that system, Darwin simply took Newton's ideas and turned them uh, into, uh, first of all, Adam Smith turned them into competition and, uh, and, and self-interest, and then Darwin basically canonizes self-interest and its survival of the fittest, and now it's in the biological as opposed to the economic realm. But the, what they have in common is a complete elimination of the moral law as the guide for human action. That's the main reason that, it under, under, uh, that, it, that it's bad. It leads to this type of callous uh, moral behavior on the part of the capitalists who feel that they're doing God's work by uh, making sure that uh, they decrease the surplus population. <laughs> or something like that. That's what Scrooge said. He was a kind of Darwinist in his day. Decreased the surplus population. He was a Malthusian. Uh, Darwin was basically implementing Malthus. But uh, I mean, the main, the, the payoff for both Smith's economic system and Darwinism, which is a development of that system in economics, it's a projection of capitalist economics onto the biological realm is basically you're, you're free from the moral law if you're the employer, if you're rich and you're powerful, and you can exploit people with impunity thinking that you're the cutting edge of evolution. Uh, so keep going, Dr. Jones. One more question. One more? Please. All right. Um, <clears throat> from Post No Bills on Cozy. Uh, do you think the Ukraine war was brought about to bring a Kazaria 2.0? Uh, uh, that may be uh, part of it. I think the main reason for the Ukraine war was an attack on Russia. That the point of this was to uh, break Russia up into small, impotent countries so that we could, the United States could loot its natural resources. They tried to do that right after the fall of communism, and uh, Putin is the man who thwarted that, and now they have to want to get rid of Putin. 
uh, and basically uh, achieve the same end. That's uh, the Kazaria thing may be a possibility. Uh, that's what comes to my mind when they, when Zelensky starts collaborating with Larry Fink. Uh, but I don't think that was the primary goal. All anyway, right. I'm sorry again. I apologize for the late uh, start. As as usual, I've enjoyed this uh, discussion. The questions are always pointed and always uh, always on on target, and I hope we can continue this in the future. But uh, again, um, all of the stuff that I'm doing is better in more condensed, uh, systematic form in the books. I recommend the books. Buy the books. Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks again. And uh, if you guys don't know, this is usually held on Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Make sure to subscribe to the Culture Wars magazine as well as buy the books from fidelitypress.org. Links are in the description over at Cozy and our website. Uh, subscribe to the Telegram if you're not already are. And also Cozy. Everyone in Cozy, make sure to follow us. Uh, let's see. I don't have any announcements or big things coming up. I always like to end with... Final words from Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones, what do you got for us? Last words. <laughs> Why do you put me on the spot? Every here? time. It's every show. Why I got to do it. Every time tradition. Tradition. On, haven't I said enough already? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Logos is rising. God bless you. There you are. All right. See you guys. <laughs>